You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Oh, do we have some stories for you today. Is the slowdown in e-commerce overstated? What happened at IATA's cargo symposium in London? We preview COP27. We ask what next for the EC's line of consortia competition rule exemptions. Chipping in with their thoughts, the Lodestar's Alex Nenea Nixavides and e-commerce voice of reason, Miria Nissen. We also have cameos from CMA TGM's former air cargo boss and Cyprus's deputy minister of shipping, no less. Then, if you think East Coast versus West Coast is all about rappers, think again. In part two, we're looking at cargo shifts in the US this year from both a global perspective and from a port operator's viewpoint. I'll be talking to Peter Sand, Chief Analyst at Zenita, and the CEO and Executive Director of Virginia Port Authority, Stephen A. Edwards. Two thirds of the people live on the east of the Mississippi. So there is a slice of business that's going to move from west to east because of macro effects. Our job as an individual port is to get our slice of the pizza, right? That's, that's what our job is. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar Podcast. Before we start, should it have flown past your attention radar by some miracle, you can find all episodes of this podcast on your platform of choice and on the lodestar.com. And should you get the edge, you can contact me with any thoughts, comments, or antisocial abuse. I'm joking at mikeking121 at gmail.com. And who will be joining me today? I hear you wonder, especially if you didn't listen carefully to my intro. First up, it's somebody who uh, never feels better than when she's attending a conference in a darkened bunker. It's Lodestar publisher Alex Lenane. Hello, Alex. Hi, Mike. And uh, also with us, we have a man who can brighten any room with his optimistic vigour. It's Lodestar news editor Nick Savides. Hello, Nick. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's me. I didn't realise you were talking about me. But yes, hi. I, it was all tongue-in-cheek, Nick, but welcome anyway. <laughs> As trailed, in part one, we've got lots of big stories to cover, including why lines are now begging for cargo. Got some great insights on e-commerce from an industry leader, and Nick is going to give us a full briefing of what we can expect from COP27 next month. But first, the question that probably every listener just needs an answer to. London hosted IATA's World Cargo Symposium last month at XL London. There were 1,350 delegates from 73 countries in attendance. Plenty of sponsors too. And Alex, you wrote an opinion that absolutely eviscerated it. Let me just take one of these beautiful sentences. Carpetless and dark. It was like doing business in a quick-fit tyre centre. And it feels like the start of a steady decline for IATA, the beginning of its very own Budenbrooks effect. Where do we start with that? Well, maybe you can explain the Budenbrooks effect. I probably mispronounced it in a second. But first, what's a, a quick fit tyre centre just for our non-UK listeners? And uh, why is the XL centre so like it? Yeah, thanks for pointing that one out, Mike. Um, I did actually check before I, I wrote it, and Quick Fit is available across Europe. But for those who haven't had the pleasure, they are basic, cheap, solar centres where you can get your car tyres fixed. In fact, my daughter, while potty training, once did a poo in the waiting room there, and I was surprised to find it didn't affect the ambience one little bit. In fact, no one batted an eyelid. 
the Excel Center has really similar vibes. Unlike QuickFit, though, the Excel Center is annoyingly hard to get to on the outskirts of London. And us Brits were quite excited at the fact that IATA was coming to London, finally in the UK. But um, sadly, they didn't put it anywhere near any sun. No, I was there as well. I actually looked this up. It's a bit sad I did, but I, I did XL London, right? It's actually an abbreviation for Exhibition Centre London. Like, so what sort of poetic genius was in charge of their branding? No imagination whatsoever. Maybe, unless they were trying to like sell the naming rights to Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> but Alex, you, you made a point. It wasn't just that the XL Centre itself is a bit dank. It sort of breeds this weird natural light sense of confusion. Oh, you feel vaguely upside down. I don't know what it is, but there was other events on there while we were there. And IATA stood out for being pretty poor, even in relationship to those other events, didn't it? IATA didn't exactly roll out the red carpet, did they? No, they really didn't. I mean, there was no carpet at all, let alone a red one. But yeah, you're right. One of the things the Excel Centre is that you can see all the other industries having their events down the hall. And it's disappointing to find out that you're the one that looks the worst, to be honest. As I said, it's dark, uh, without any atmosphere. Whereas there was an e-commerce expo just down the hall. It's full of young people looking excited. And I also went to the uh, Gartner Supply Chain event over the river, which was very modern and comfy and bright and had actual women and, and young people as well. So the contrast was really quite stark. You're right, Gartner Symposium was excellent. But I'm going to try and seize on some positives from the World Cargo Symposium. Uh, I had a few good chats to people on the floor. I know you did. One of the highlights from the sessions was CMA CGM explaining their business plan and how Air Cargo fits into it, which you covered on the lodestar.com. Sorry about the sound quality here, and I'm, I'm going to blame Excel a little bit for this, but I'll just play a little clip from that session. This is CMA CGM's. Olivier Casanova, who, well, we'll come back to his title shortly, but he was ahead of CMACGM at that moment in time. The, the idea was to launch uh, a new French airline, a modern fleet of freighters, and uh, it was an important step in the implementation of the strategic vision of Anshan. So I did to basically expand the, the product and the service offering uh, that we are providing to our customers. Alex, Olivier explained exactly how CMA CGM sees its relationship with forwarders and how the airline fits in with its logistics arm, SIVA. What else did you take away from that talk from Olivier? I think he was just keen to soothe any fears that forwarders might have. I would say they own SIVA, they also own Jeffco now. And I think it was also to do with Maersk's last year the restrictions that put on forwarders. Forwarders, I think, started to have a bit of concern over the shipping lines and their vertical ambition. So I think his main focus, as you said, was to was to soothe the fears of any forwarders who might want to use their aircraft. And I and I think it probably worked. Olivier Casanova was CMA CGM Air Cargo's first CEO when it was set up in March 2021. Despite his lack of airline experience, I thought he came across quite well at the symposium, but possibly not well enough to save him from uh, the guillotine. Or perhaps it was that attending an IASA event was the straw that broke the camel's back for him because he's now been replaced, hasn't he? They basically replaced one shipping line guy with another. So Casanova's been replaced by Guillaume Lasselis who's now heading the airline. I wrote that it appeared as a result that Air France KLM would probably end up 
running the airline, but CMA really wasn't very pleased with that assessment and got in touch to tell me so. They insist that they're going to run the airline, not Air France KLM. But it does bring into question the lack of experience of the people they keep appointing at the top because they always seem to be shipping line guys. Any other takeaways from the symposium, Alex, or from the Gartner supply chain event held over the other side of the River Thames in rather more salubrious fashion, as I think we've already mentioned? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as you said, then, like the money, the charm, the innovation, the technology, all of it looks like it's going into supply chain management, not air cargo. I mean, IATA, to me, looks increasingly sidelined. I kept hearing from companies who wanted to work out their own solutions to things and bring in other companies to, to do it with rather than going through IATA, which has been the traditional way. And then there was an announcement by PayCargo that it essentially plans to take over the world in the payments business, which is making IATA's CAS payment system, which is one of its primary functions, looking increasingly sidelined again. And those are my sort of main takeaways from it all. Thank you, Alex. Uh, Nick. Hello. Hello again. Shipping rates are tumbling. Part of this is down to easing port congestion, which is freeing up effective capacity in the global fleet. We'll be exploring what that looks like at US ports in part two of this podcast when I speak to Senator Chief Analyst Peter Sand and the head of the US East Coast Port of Virginia, Stephen Edwards. Nick, so what's your take upon this coming? I know you've been at a number of conferences lately. Is this an issue that's coming up when you're talking to people in shipping? So I've been at the Maritime Cyprus Conference in Limassol this week, and surprisingly, it wasn't one of the debates, that, the formal debates that took place, but on the sidelines, people have been talking about it in quite some great detail. And one of the things that is, is clear is that there's going to be some substantial scrapping going on in, in the new year when the carbon intensity measures come in. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that affects the freight rates next year. The latest information we're getting from analysts, including Zenitor, is that rates are going to continue falling even as scrapping reaches record levels. Is this a case of with carriers now begging for cargo, as Lodestar.com's reported, that the boot's very much on the other foot for shippers now, isn't it, versus lines? It is very much on the other foot, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how shippers react to that situation, given the, um, the tonking they've taken from the shipping lines over the last couple of years. And certainly my conversations with forwarders and analysts and other people in the industry, obviously we have these record deliveries due in 2023, 2024. So we are expecting some scrapping. I think golden week, we've seen service suspensions, uh, blankings. People are talking about layoffs. So we, some of that will continue after golden week. I suspect Alex, where are we on air cargo rates right now? Well, it's not great if, if you're an airline. Few people seem to think there's a peak season on its way. The TAC index this week shows that rates overall have fallen 6.3%. So that's reasonably significant. China to the US is down 7.7%. I mean, Hong Kong to Chicago is down 23%. But China Europe's quite flat, actually. I spoke to an air charter company today, and they said capacity was still quite hard to come by, though which means that rates are going to keep at those sort of renovated levels. But then there's all these issues around the world. There's a port strike in South Africa, which, you know, the shippers are now looking to air cargo. So that may lead to some sort of spike. But generally speaking, demand is reasonably soft at the moment. As we all know, wherever we get our media, there's an awful lot of economic issues out there at the moment. Many economies are looking at recessions over the next few quarters. 
as we've covered previously, when we've looked at various companies and how they're scaling back, including FedEx, Amazon, and Giardis, amongst others, one of the reasons they report for uh, scaling back their ambitions or their earnings forecasts is a slowing in that rate of e-commerce growth uh, during 2022. So at this point, I'd like to welcome to the Lodestar podcast, Florida-based Miria Nissen, an operations and supply chain expert with 25 years of experience in international and domestic transport and logistics. She's also the director of e-commerce solutions at International Bonded Couriers. Hello, Miria. Hi, Mike. Thanks for coming on, Miria. At the Lodestar, we've seen various major players saying they're seeing disappointing returns from e-commerce divisions. Um, in some cases, they've revised expansion plans or downgraded profit forecasts. Is this the inevitable reversion of consumers to pre-COVID norms in terms of consumption patterns, perhaps? Well, Mike, what I think is, and like I said, I can just talk from my own experience and the things I have read, is I think we kind of going back to the normal. This is the new normal. I think what has happened during COVID, where we saw exponential growth on all ends in terms of volumes, in terms of profits, I think that's something which in the long run is not sustainable. I think people obviously will always go back to a retail sector. People will go back to stores um, for the experience. But again, I think what COVID has done is it certainly has boosted the e-commerce traffic in terms of volumes. But again, it will kind of, in my opinion, pendle back to the new normal, which might be a little less than we saw two years ago or a year and a half ago. Are we seeing how this new normal is playing out? Is that impacting forwarders and integrators differently? Or maybe this is more about B2C or B2B commerce. Is it different because on that level instead? Well, what I feel is that the new normal, as we're calling it, has a little bit also been influenced by external unpreventable events like the fuel crisis, the energy crisis, supply chain shortages. So obviously, this is a framework which is creating extra costs for whoever is getting involved. So obviously, some companies are thinking, do we really need this expansion? Do we really need this warehouse? Does it really make sense for us? What I have seen is I think e-commerce in general is definitely the future. It can be a profit sector for somebody, but I think in my opinion, margin and profits are generated over volume. It's not like the regular cargo sector, what I have seen is which is far more easier to manage in terms of profit margins. So I feel like the e-commerce sectors, you're not really going to generate high margins with lower volumes. The margins are generated over the volumes. And it's a very delicate sector. It is the future. So everybody's trying to get involved in it one way or the other. So basically, to be successfully involved in it, you as any company, obviously, you have to find your niche. But you also have to adjust your your costs and you have to obviously have a certain pricing where you're still going to make money. And that's what we're seeing at the moment with the increase of the fuel surcharges. That's what we are seeing companies saying like, oh, we don't need um, office space for customer service centers. I think you have heard this about Amazon's talk saying, no, we're not going to expand on that sector. We're going to have everybody work from home. So I think companies trying to 
take off the meat of the bone, I would say, to still be part of the future, but be actually a part of it in, in a profitable way. Maria, so looking forward, what happens in that short-term future? You know, we've got the upcoming holiday season, but also maybe what happens for the rest of this decade for e-commerce? Where do we go from here? So what I believe in when it comes to e-commerce, especially in the future, the next decade, definitely there's going to be growth. And definitely this is going to be the future. What I think is we will see more digitalization. We will see new technologies, new marketplaces, new shipping platforms, new things basically popping up especially a lot of startups and new companies because everybody wants to get a piece out of it. I think consumers will continue buying online, but I feel that consumer is getting more and more educated. So their expectations in many areas will actually increase. Expectations in terms of times, expectations in terms of data transfer, so they want to be informed, where is my shipment? Is it really arriving when it was promised? And I also think that customers more and more will be less and less willing to actually pay for transportation. So everybody wants to have the free shipping. Everybody wants to basically get what they get through Amazon Prime. They probably be able at this point to sacrifice time for it if they don't have to pay for shipping. One thing what I've been seeing, and this is actually very interesting how this is going to be playing out, is when you look at the cross-border sector, I feel with the new duty and tax scheme in the European Union, where they completely eliminated the threshold, it will be interesting to see what the U.S. market is going to do. Are they going to keep the high threshold of $800 to continue boosting cross-border e-commerce at this point? Or are they going to go back to the, I know there were some talks, going to go back to the 250. Overall, I feel this whole sector will get more and more digitalized. As a result, obviously, the data transfer will become more and more seamless, transparent for every party, including the consumer. And customers will basically want to be informed. So I'm thinking, for example, about these um, tax calculators. So if I'm a foreigner, I'm buying something, or I'm a U.S. person, I'm buying something, foreigner as my better because it's $800 here. And I'm buying something overseas, I'm buying something from a U.S. website, I'm based in London. I want to understand not only what is my cost of transport, I want to also understand what's going to be my duties and taxes I have to pay. So I think speed will go up, cost obviously will go up, nothing is for free, expectations will go up. And the customer at the end will be the one benefiting from it in many ways and also getting more educated. Miria, you're from Germany, but you're based in Florida. Do you think the way those trends that you've just described, will they play out differently in Europe versus the US? Are they, are they different speed markets maybe? I think it depends a little bit if you look at each country and their level of digitalization the level of acceptance to online sales, the availability of online sales. The thing what I think is going to happen in Europe is that I'm seeing it actually. A lot of U.S. shippers, instead of shipping directly B2C to the consumer in Europe and them having to pay the duties and taxes, 
they're going to establish DCs in Europe to be closer to the client. I mean, I think that's a trend you see all over that instead of taking the long ways as a B2C concept, that companies are developing DCs closer to their consumers or to the markets of their main consumers for tax reasons, reasons, for time reasons. Just finally, Miria, do you think those changing dynamics in this industry, will we see a blaring of who does what or who profits from what in the supply chain between, say, couriers, integrators, forwarders, 3PLs? Will any of those roles start blaring in future or more than they are already? I think they're going to be blurring more. I think that I don't want to name specific companies, but I think what you're seeing is there's a shopping spree going on. So larger freight forwarders buying themselves into the e-commerce market, actually opening up and developing their own e-commerce sectors. So obviously everybody wants to get a piece of the cake. What I feel would be very interesting to see, in my opinion, is that they can all get involved in it. But at the end of the day, they are all accessing the same or they have the choice to access the same last mile providers. So unless there's new ones coming onto the market, it's kind of, in my opinion, it will be very interesting to see how those established last mile carriers continue to navigate the market, including the postal operators. That's something I'm really looking because it, it's a cheaper segment, but it's the segment which serves globally. So I'm actually excited to see how this is playing out. Fast moving market with a lot of moving parts. Miria Nissen, thank you for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mike, for having me here. DHL results saw them actually boost profits and upwardly revise EBIT guidance. And one of the things that they cited was quite positive year on year B2C e-commerce shipments. So not everyone is seeing same sort of negative trends, although they did also report soft B2B demand. Alex, you did a story about the parcelization of B2B e-commerce driving air cargo demand. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, that was one thing um, I took away from WCS. Several people said that they were seeing increasing amount of B2B e-commerce, which essentially means smaller shipments going faster and more often, which I think will probably lead to some sort of change in the traditional air cargo infrastructure. Another one of your stories, Alex, on Lodestar.com was about container line regulation. Now, the EC is looking into whether to extend the consortia block exemption regulation, the CBER, from European competition law after April 2024. Now, Germany's competition authority, the I'll say this for you, Alex, to save you from having to give it a go. Thank you. The, the Bundeskarte Lamt has now said it's against the extension. What's the importance of this for carriers and their customers? Well, this has been a big thing for shippers. They feel they've been treated appallingly, really, over the last couple of years. But it's not just that. They feel that the exemptions the carriers have had in being allowed their alliances have been unfair in in part, that's because the lines have moved into the verticals. You know, they're involved in ports and they're involved in forwarding and, and all sorts of logistics. And so customers feel it's a really unfair advantage with which other companies providing similar services just don't get. But now shippers are saying that it shouldn't just be about whether to extend this exemption or not. They want it to be reviewed completely and rethought about. 
Now, Germany has said that it's, it's, it's open to reviews, but it, it feels like it's against it. Israel, on the other hand, has said it supports the extension of the exemption. So it'll be interesting to see what other competition authorities decide to do. I spoke to James Hookham, actually, Secretary General of the Global Shippers Forum, about this, as covered on the, the latest big interview podcast out last week. Understandably, he's rather keen for more reform. Nick, what was the view from Cyprus? On the CB, uh, I, I did speak to Vasilios Dimitriadis, the Deputy Shipping Minister, and I asked him, what was your view on the CB? Not yet, not yet. We are, we are evaluating, I'm very well aware from my previous uh, life about this, the fact that the uh, Commission granted uh, an extension only for, I, I remember, four, four years, years, not six, as it was usually, on grounds of very justified uh, information, either considering, but we have not reached, let's say, a clear position on Cyprus yet. Right. We, the, the Germans have said that there's been a change in the industry because it's more concentrated now. Is that the way you see it? Well, actually, the plan is to have uh, in the forthcoming days a meeting with our industry to hear more how they, they see the whole thing because, uh, okay, one thing is economies of scale, the other is whether this will add to the environment if it's more, you know, organization structures and optimization from the block exception. But on the other side, we have to check whether uh, it's still um, appropriate. I mean, in these times, I know the container market has been really, really profitable. Yeah. But honestly, we have not reached any position. We need to hear. I, I always want to hear, you know, the different perspectives before deciding on this. Nick, more generally, do you think the, the tide has turned with some of these former supporters of CBER? Is it looking different in, the, in this post-COVID world after we've had these stratospheric rates? I think there has been a change, and I, th I think the shippers have uh, also changed strategy. There is a, a shift with the vertical integration because there's a concern that shippers' commercial information is being shared in a way that may not be strictly legal. That's not necessarily the case, but there is a fear that that's happening. Nick, you attended COP26 in Glasgow. COP27 will be held from the 6th to the 18th of November in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. What are you expecting to come out of this event? What will be the most relevant point of discussion, for example, for Lodestar listeners, do you think? Well, I think there are two major things. And they came out quite clearly in the Maritime Cyprus event as well, which was very interesting. Almost 80% of the discussions at Maritime Cyprus were about green issues. Uh, one of the big issues is going to be LNG. LNG is, is a, a very potent greenhouse gas, but it stays in the atmosphere for 20 years. 20 years in 2030 takes us to 2050. So LNG is likely to be phased out very quickly. The other big issue has been uh, that, that was discussed at length yesterday was taxonomy and the incentives the EU are looking at to try and get shipping companies to incentivize and go green. Sounds like there's a lot going on then. We'll look forward and, and hope there's some progress at COP27. In the meantime, Nick Savides, Alex Lenane, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Mike.
Welcome to part two of this Lodestar podcast, where we'll be talking about one of the strangest changes in global cargo flows we've possibly ever seen. And it all played out in the US and specifically at US ports during 2022. I always think we're all drawn to things in opposition to each other. We see this in popular culture. LeBron versus Jordan, Messi versus Ronaldo, even David versus Goliath. And who didn't feel compelled to watch the classic movie Cowboys and Aliens purely due to that beautiful juxtaposition of sci-fi and Western genres? It may well have just been me and maybe... It wasn't a classic, if I'm absolutely honest, but I think you know what I mean. So do you remember that tragic old rapper feud, L.A. versus New York? Well, in 2022, East Coast versus West Coast was all about the ports. Who didn't see those graphics of long vessel queues at San Pedro in 2021, where vessels were held waiting to load at L.A. and Long Beach? Well, in 2022, those queues and a lot of cargo that was caught up in them have shifted to the U.S. East Coast. The reasons were many and the implications and complications of that shift are continued to play out for U.S. Inc. And for the ports, forwarders, shippers and lines that are stakeholders in those supply chains. To discuss the whys and wheres of this, I'm joined today by two people who come to this subject from very different angles. We have a regular friend of the Lodestar podcast in the form of Peter Sand, Chief Analyst at Zenitor. Hello, Peter. Hi, Mike. Always a pleasure. And uh, and today, Peter is joined by Stephen A. Edwards, CEO and Executive Director of Virginia Port Authority, the mid-Atlantic port that has been expanding rather rapidly. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Mike. Good afternoon to you. Stephen, you're, you're from Cardiff originally, is that right? But how did you end up over there? Okay, quick quick story. Yes, I, I'm from Cardiff originally, um, educated in Aston University, joined P&O, which your UK listeners will know very well, at the shipping line, and had a great career there, which moved around the world. And we elected, my family and I elected to stay in the States when we were in New Jersey, and it was time for schooling. So stayed in New Jersey and have followed a career, switched from shipping to ports in North America ever since, and never looked back and thoroughly enjoy it. So you're definitely well qualified then. Well, I'll turn to you first, if I may. We've heard so much on the Lodestar podcast and across the media this year about this switch of cargo and vessel services from the US West Coast to East Coast ports. A lot of this has been to do with concerns about West Coast port productivity, not least due to the terrible delays of ports such as LA and Long Beach, but also because of the history tells us that new dock worker negotiations between the ILWU union and port interests on the West Coast, as represented by the Pacific Maritime Association, tend to affect the efficiency of those West Coast ports. As we talk second week of October, those negotiations continue despite the contract expiring at the end of June this year. But Stephen, we'll come to that exactly and that cargo switch. But firstly, can you just explain the state of container facilities that come under the umbrella of the Port of Virginia, please? Yes, certainly, Mike. So for the Port of Virginia, we operate three really primary container terminals. We call them Virginia International Gateway, Norfolk International South, Norfolk International North. We also have some inland points. We have a barge terminal up the river, up the river in Richmond, which we shuttle barges to three times a week. And we have a rail terminal further up in Virginia. We're significant rail volumes through here, about a third of our business is rail. 
two of our terminals are fully modernized, so semi-automated, modern terminals, by far the most modern port on the U.S. Eastern Gulf Coast. And, you know, we'll talk a little later on short, but we're, we're doing a lot of, you know, a significant capital investment program to deepen, widen our channels further. And the North NIT, part of our terminals, will also be modernized to semi-automated operations as well. So really quite different from some other ports. We are the Port Authority. We're also the Marine Total Operator. So we own and operate all of the assets. And well, either the last 12 months or we could stick to 2022. But in terms of new liner service, in terms of new cargo, what sort of performance have you had this year? And, and can you comment at all on how much of those services or that cargo that is new to your port, presumably, has uh, may or may not have shifted from the West Coast? Well, let's go quickly backwards. 2021, we were 25% up on 2020. That made us the fastest growing percentage-wise in the North America, North American area. We're up 9% so far this year, so 9% over 25%, which again is, is as we're beginning to see some normalization, is another good piece of growth on top of what we did last year. I think when you look at the West Coast, to East Coast, we can get into this, and I'm sure Peter's got more data sets than I have, but as we get into the West Coast, East Coast shift, what you're seeing actually is a trend that's been going on for a significant period of time. It got slightly reversed at the beginning of 20, well, in the middle of 2020, early 21, as there was a rush to get goods to market. But there is an overall shift to business anyway, coming to the East Coast from the West Coast. So maybe a bit more accelerated in the last six months than it was before, but it was a trend that's been in place for the last five to 10 years anyhow. And there are multiple reasons for that. From our perspective, yes, there's been more ships, more services deployed to the East Coast, good, strong demand. But I think the key message really in part is there's significant distribution infrastructure, logistics infrastructure being built up and down the East Coast in terms of logistics, parks, translate capability that is deliberately to allow diversification away from Southern California. Peter, could you put that into a bit of perspective for us in terms of those cargo shifts from West Coast to East Coast, either in the last year or historically? I mean, what's driving this and, and how significant is it? Stephen, a spot on that, that. This is one of the mega trends of North American imports that we have seen over the past decade, literally where more and more goods are shipped via U.S. East Coast ports to a little extent also via the U.S. Gulf Coast ports where a port of Houston, for instance, have really been tested also in terms of the limits of throughput abilities down there during the past year and a half approximately, especially when, of course, the storm was, was coming with the ILWU uh, PMA negotiations that are still ongoing and that definitely scared some shippers to push cargo out of the U.S. West Coast into the U.S. East Coast. If we go by some of the numbers for this year alone, we can see that volumes inbound to U.S. West Coast is literally from the Far East down by 10%, almost 10% literally. So that's, in my eyes, <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, we got almost 12% up on the Far East to U.S. East Coast trade. And of course, U.S. East Coast is so much more than Far Eastern imports. Very much so, we have also seen the European exporters being squeezed out by some of the boxes that have arrived via the Panama Canal, of course, as cargo has shifted there. But it's definitely a significant amount of volumes that you have seen in total volumes. Uh, we're talking about a shift to the extent of 4 or 5% with the U.S. West Coast port still being the uh, largest group in terms of imports all over. The fact that most boxes still arrive from Far East is a, is a fact that we cannot deny. But I think also one of the competitors that Stephen are having on his 
side of the uh, North American continent, York, New Jersey, uh, just had a, a say a, a record of their own beating the boats, San Pedro Bay ports in the month of, was that the August or September in terms of total throughput? So there's definitely something going on here in terms of boxes shifting back and forth. And of course, that's a part of the normalization also when we get beyond signing of a contract and, and beyond the current downturn in the market, when some of those boxes are likely to move back to some extent. And how has that changed the the nature of vessel queues at the different ports on the West Coast where we saw those significant delays last year? Have they moved over to the East Coast or the Gulf Coast now, Peter? Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically a, a copy-paste of what we saw in most part of 2021. That has been repeated in 2022 on the other coast. So massive congestion around the U.S. East Coast ports, and I'm sure Stephen will also recognize long lines of ships uh, being waiting outside his port, even though his his terminals, I'm I'm sure, did whatever they could, getting boxes in and out. It was overwhelming to see at some point in time, carriers were ready to literally bring capacity up by some 50% on top of what would otherwise normally be announced naturally. That never materialized because there was also a limit to how much cargo was actually going to be shifted there. But without doubt, this whole congestion issue coming down quite rapidly in the past 14 days. It may be too early to call it off, but we are definitely also seeing now spot rates uh, in the past couple of days. If we look at the Salina spot market for the transatlantic, they are coming down now, even though it seems to be the one trait that has defied gravity. The transatlantic volumes going into uh, to a U.S. East Coast. So a lot of congestion still around on the West Coast also double up from pre-pandemic levels, but it's coming down and it's part of that whole, say, upcoming one-year transformation into uh, to carriers once again deploying ships into their natural habitat away from the hectic uh, COVID years. Steve, and a couple of good points that Peter raised there. Certainly last month, we still had significant congestion at Savannah, Houston, New York, New Jersey. So um, my first question to you is, what sort of vessel queues have you seen at Virginia? And the other factor that has been in the press, certainly a fair bit, is that the problems that these East Coast ports have had with empties, even I think we've even had empty container tariffs at some terminals. How have you been affected by those things? Actually, I think we performed significantly better than the coast as a whole in, in that area. So we've not really had any particular significant delays that some of our peers may have had. But there's no doubt that if you look at the macro trends that Peter talked about, that certainly this year you've seen a lot of Texan imports that would have normally gone over the West Coast and switched to, to Houston. So that's so some items there maybe. But for us, if I look at us as a whole, right, we've come out of the other side of uh, Hurricane Ian shut down. We've got a couple of ships, maybe three or four out of anchor right now. You know, nothing, nothing of note. But I think the biggest difference is how we operate. I mean, it really is the significant difference of, of how we operate as a whole. In the introduction, I said, well, look, we're the Port Authority. We're also the terminal operator. And if I go beyond that, we're also the asset provider. We're also the technology provider. We're also the party that runs the intermodal chassis fleet. So when you put all that together and you say, well, what, what's the difference? If you think about one of the point on San Pedro was, well, you know, New York has been LA and has been in Long Beach in one month. Therefore, because some business switched from LA to Long Beach, it took LA down, took Long Beach up a bit and so on. But really it's one complex, right? San Pedro is what is one complex. Here we're one complex under one management. So if we move ships from terminal A to terminal B to berth C to berth D or whatever, 
but we're not taking different economic interests into play. So we draw all that flexibility to use our capacity up to whatever our limits are. There were times early this year when we were close to our yard limits, but that wasn't, and actually our throughput was down because it was the dwell time of the cargo, right? It was a problem further on in the supply chain. But I think the way you beat all this is communication. And the example I would could give to you is the railroads. We do about 30, 35% of our business by rail. Um, we rail into multiple locations in the Ohio Valley and the Midwest. So we can have one of our railroads, let's just pick a location. Let's say Kansas City has got a backlog, right? So the railroad can come to us and say, can you please hold Kansas City cargo? Now you start the problem, right? So you're now moving down the railroad back into the port. And if the port gets jammed up, you're going to hold a ship at anchor. But the response to that is, of course, we can hold your Kansas City. Can you speed up Columbus or can you speed up Chicago for us? So if we run that as a network and we say, as long as our overall cargo dwell times are manageable, we can manage the ports and the ships. I think what we're going to see across North America as a whole, ships are not going to be on schedule for a long time to come. You've got labor action going on in Europe right now, which is causing disruption to the European schedules. We know we've still got COVID you know, responses of lockdowns in Asia, so we still see ships can't run to proper schedules. So they're going to arrive in peaks and troughs. So you're going to have to squeeze them through when they come as a peak. You're going to have to clean up the yard when you get a little bit of a trough. The other change that has switched, I think, slightly from the West Coast is if you go back to middle of last year when there was the biggest problems on the West Coast, we had ships sailing from Asia, which would just, were sailing to Los Angeles. Great. But they didn't have anywhere to go. So they didn't say, well, it's like a plane taking off and saying, but I haven't got a landing slot, right? So that's going to create uh, dynamics. So I think those days are over. We're back into North, we're back into, we know, the West Coast know what ships they're getting. The East Coast has been much more organized because the carriers coming to East Coast planned well in advance because it's a longer transit. You knew a lot more about what was coming at us. But really for us, the other big difference, we run a fully automated yard system. So when ships are out of schedule and we need to rework our yard, we set about reworking the yard and we don't burn through labor gangs. We don't have to go through all of our labor force to say, you're going to work 60, 70 hours of reworking the yard before we get to the ships. We've managed to keep the yards fluid, even if the batting order of the ships keeps changing on us. We handle the same number of ships here as LA does. We handle 130 ships a month. We just do less moves per ship. Movements in and out are just the same. So it all comes down to agility, communication, communication, communication with all the next stages of the supply chain. If you get it right, I think you can actually do it quite well. There have been, and there are cases where yeah, the volume of freight was just above the capacity that could be handled. And that's what the kind of forgiveness I, I think we got to look at for the folks in San Pedro is if you one point last year, one of the railroads said, we, we've hit gridlock, we have to stop. Imagine being told you can't take any more rail out of the gate when you've got three weeks worth of rail coming at you already on ships. That, well, how does that get exposed to you? That gets exposed to you as ships at anchor because that's the nodal point where the, where the queue starts. So I think it's a much more complex issue, but those of us who have got oversight of the entire operation, have got good communication with all the other stakeholders, we've performed to a higher level. Stephen, uh, interesting that you mentioned port automation, because obviously that's one of the pain points in the ILWU PMA negotiations. You invested a fair amount in, in the port there. You'd expanded capacity by 2020 by a million TU at Norfolk International Gateway and Virginia International Gateway. 
Have you been making any further investments or do you have any more planned? Yeah, we do. So we've got about a $1.4 billion capital plan. So I'm going to ignore, for this purpose, I'm going to ignore about $220 million because that's particular to the offshore wind industry. But we are deepening and widening our channels. So what does that mean in North American terms? When the ultra-large container ships go in and out of New York, in and out of here, in and out of Savannah, it's always a one-way transit at the moment. The channel can take in one direction at a time. So we're widening our channels to do two-directional. That means we can get ships in and out of our berths quicker. We can get a ship back on berth much faster. We can keep our cranes working. So we're doing that. We're building another 300,000 rail lift capacity to take us over a million rail lift capacity. We're doing that. And then we're going to modernize the last of our three current big terminals, NIT North, where we're going to put an 800,000 lift semi-automated facility in there as well. So we're not holding back. We've got about a $1.2 billion containerized container expansion program going on and about a 200 million offshore wind expansion program. Interestingly, it does tie in again to, uh, you talk about other hinterlands, so it ties then into the freight transportation plan of the state. So as we're expanding tunnels and bridges around us or highways, it all ties back into a modular plan where we work with our Department of Transportation on that modular plan. Again, you're trying to take the next bottleneck out. It's the next bottleneck, you know, 50 miles up the road. 30 miles up the road. So we're trying to knock down each one of those as we go through it. I want to come to Peter in a moment on the significance of those hinterland uh, bottlenecks that we've seen in the US these last two years. But just firstly, Stephen, the timeline of those investments, can you just explain when they'll be happening, when capacity will come on stream? They're all 24, 25 timeframe. So the wider channel, it takes effect in late 24. Um, the central, our, our new rail yard takes effect actually 23. And North NIT, the first phase of that is 25, second phase, 2027. And again, when you think about if we were to walk through how logistics parks have been built and freight transportation, the biggest infrastructure project we have here is a $3.5 billion tunnel expansion, not our dollars, somebody else's. And that also is 2025. So you have a plan here that is all built around 2024 to 2025 delivery of significant freight capacity. Peter, Stephen said there, so the, the obvious manifestation of problems with the supply chain is vessel queues, but that doesn't really tell a whole story. In the, uh, the US, we've had truck driver shortages, chassis shortages, uh, too many empties, not enough empties in the right place. Railroads are underinvested. How has all of those factors affected the efficiency of US logistics networks? Well, upfront, it would be nice if all the investments that we have seen on the U.S. East Coast, for instance, in the past, say, five, seven years, where they literally all prepared for welcoming the ultra-large container ships at the point in time when they were not calling the U.S. West Coast. Right now, during the COVID storm, I guess they have been put to work to the best possible extent at that point in time. So getting into the hinterland connectivity, I think, well, of course, we have seen from uh, Capitol Hill investment plans being announced, but to the extent possible, whether it's too little, too late, I think it's fair to say that it's been a public fact and something that, that we everybody know about that, uh, that the infrastructure in the U.S. have been starved for decades. So whether it's too little, time will tell, but it's certainly about time to get some of those investments uh, back up. I think at some point in time, Stephen, uh, touch on uh, railway connectivity into Kansas, but I, I recall also during the peak of the crisis that we are just about to see the end of that uh, railway container moves into Chicago had to stop like 80 to uh, 100 kilometers outside where they should actually be calling that inland terminal 
because it was simply clocked up also at the receiving end on the hinterland connectivity. And naturally, that all gets locked back into the boxes that leaves the port. That yard density that we have seen exploding everywhere and still see quite high, very much so still on the US West Coast, certainly also in Europe, as even lower volumes have not really made it possible for many of those big terminals and ports in Hamburg or in, in Rotterdam, they have not really been capable of working through the backlog due to uh, a lot of inefficiencies in the way that they basically came into this COVID situation. So I think, uh, Mike, going back to one aspect that needs to be solved, first and foremost, I think the trucking issue is actually the most critical one. Of course, also that, uh, that use of chassis, not only for, uh, well, some perhaps, uh, in lack of a better term, uh, the lazy importers that tend to have, say, a box used for storage on top of a chassis that should be put to work somewhere else. That's, of course, not making a strained supply chain working as efficient as it could. But, uh, but I think in terms of getting to, uh, well, if we speak one year from now, I'm sure we will have ample supply of capacity in the uh, networks also in North America. And obviously, a uh, stressful time like the ones that we have just gone through where imports into North America are up by 27% on pre-COVID levels. Obviously, it was a disaster to happen. We did not see networks being capable of moving so much cargo. I mean, normally you, you see a gradual growth of anywhere between two, three, five percent, but having 27% in the time span of some 30 months, that was of course a disaster waiting to happen. So so once we have unwinded it, the dust of settled, we will see what is the real level of demand going forward, at least not only for rail, but certainly also for truck. So I think we're still in for some hinterland connectivity issues in North America, as we are in COVID-ridden China, but certainly that is the one thing that we will also be watching out for as the logistics problems on the oceans unwind. Definitely, we still need those in the enhancement in the connectivity parts of the global supply chains also to unwind for everything to normalize. And do Stephen, bearing in mind all those points that Peter's just made, if, we, if I might take a, a slight flight of fancy, if you had a federal carte blanche to fix the problems with the U.S. infrastructure in terms of supply chains, where would you start firstly? And secondly, where would you start specific to helping the Port of Virginia? Who can help you? What can help you? So I think what Peter raised is really quite interesting is in the supply chain is who pays for redundancy or resiliency. If you think through that whole process, which says... If the warehousing space in Chicago was full because we weren't taking deliveries out of, you know, we've oversupplied Chicago, and then we're saying, okay, we can't, we're going to store at the rail ramp, and then we're going to hold the train up, and then the transload operation in California is going to be held up because we're holding the train up, so we're going to hold the chassis at the transload, so we can't take containers out of the terminal because of the chassis, so we're going to hold, the yard's going to fill up, so we're going to hold the ship outside. Where do you start, right? And I think in those kind of systems. The chassis issues across the nation, but we actually have our solution because we operate the chassis fleets for Virginia. We operate them ourselves. The question you've got to ask is chassis fleets in North America are operated in the private sector, right? They're operated for profit. So think about if you're landing at an airport and you're high, you know, you go rent a car. So you're going to go rent a car when you land at Manchester airport and you're going to say, great. Okay. But if the amount of time you want that car for goes from the normal three days that Avis experiences to 20 days. Does Avis go and build a bigger fleet or does it say, hey, this is a bubble and I will let the bubble come back because I don't want too many cars afterwards. So private rental companies for profit are always going to say, 
I'll let the bubble get through and I will keep my fleet right. They're not acting as a utility that says I must provide. So think about your power utility. You, you want electric power in your house every day. They have an obligation to serve. We, we took the view with chassis here that there is a need, need to serve. So I think there are different models that work better in, in different locations. If you were to really truly say, where do you build resilient capacity and who pays for it? That debate is still to come. What I do think is you're, you're going to see in North America, you're going to see significant investment in, log in logistics parks in different locations. And it's happening. So if you actually think about what's going on in the marketplace, there are hundreds of millions of dollars being invested in transload and in warehousing away from where it, this historical concentration on, on LA Long Beach. And you're seeing other announcements coming out to help him finally to help improve LA Long The BNSF, I think, has just recently come out with an announcement. So realistically, the private sector is stepping in to say, where can we build efficient capacity? Where you create buffer zones for where do I place long stay boxes that are holding up the system, long stay cargo that is really holding up that capability. I think every wider port, so let's think of it in our terms of wider ports, is your every port is going to have to hold on to a secondary buffer site that says something happens down the supply chain that stops out, that's going to stop our business. We're all going to have to build into our planning going forward that secondary buffer site. Because I think I don't think it says, go build a bigger Chicago ramp, go build a bigger Columbus, Ohio facility. People are going to expand there. People are going to expand warehousing and logistics parks. That's all happening. But the shock to the systems say, hey, I've got to take 10,000 containers out of my system and park them, for want of a better word, because something's happened in the system. That planning is going to be built in somewhere. And of course, the cost of land has got to be covered and the cost of development has got to be covered somehow. So I think... The system is going to have to realize there's going to be a slightly higher capital cost and a slightly higher unit price as a result of actually people building in redundancy to the system. But the logical place to build it actually is close to the port because you don't know where the problem is going to be down the line. You don't know if the problem is going to be in Kansas or Chicago or Ohio or with one railroad or another railroad. You don't know where that problem is going to be. So you're actually better off putting it as near to the port away from the waterfront because the waterfront property is too valuable. You're going to have to go close enough that you can get all the containers back into the network and allow for those buffers. I don't have a perfect answer for every port. That's not possible if you're a residential locked port, but it is possible for sites which have got some faster rail links to look in America. When we say close, that's within a hundred miles. It's a little different to the UK, but I think you can see the same in Europe today. Where the Rhine water levels are so low, people have to switch modes, and that creates capacity constraints. There are going to have to be these buffers to say, when cargo is slowing its delivery, how do we take it out of the system so the rest of the system runs fast? Obviously, you talked earlier about long-term investments, but how are you viewing the more near-term? How are you viewing the demand picture for next year? What are the lines saying to you in terms of how many services they're running or, or what are your other stakeholders? What's their view on where the economy is at and those imports particularly? I don't think any, any one person knows. I don't think that the carriers really truly know. I think their systems are now built to be much more spot market or tramp shipping related. So they can move ships very quickly from one market to the other. I think the economic indicators, you know, if on your risk register right now, they're kind of all going red because you just don't know. So you don't know what should you carry on building for short-term growth or are you going into a, a change? We can see what's happening right now. 
in terms of where demand and spot pricing and so on and so on is going. What we can't predict is the overall ocean carrier's response to that, or are we going to see a first quarter, a second quarter, or a third quarter next year? And there isn't a single economist who can give you one answer, right? Because economists on, are on the one hand and on the other hand. Right? That's the standard message to us. I think the answer at the moment is, again, agility. Be ready for whichever way this goes. Clearly, Europe, you know, the GDP forecasts for Europe are in pretty poor shape right now. The GDP forecasts for America are still positive. If you're going to look at that, you'd say, okay, we've got over inventory, which has got to work its way out of the system. That's going to cause some changes. And if you were to predict, you can say, really, I would say, where are we going to be Q2, Q3 next year? If we're still in positive GDP territory, we should be kind of back into more normal cycles, subject to lots of ships being pushed off schedule because of other issues, whether it's lockdown in Asia or labor strife in somewhere else in the world. There's going to be all those issues. That's a long way of saying, we really don't know. What I do think where we started this, we're going to see is the efficiencies of gateways and the efficiencies of east versus west and gulf versus east versus west, all that's going to play out. And we're going to continue to see people diversifying their choices because the one lesson everybody's learned is there's not one solution. There has to be more than one solution to how you keep your individual supply chains working. Stephen, Peter mentioned earlier that there's been a bit of a battle on the East Coast because there's been more Asian services going into the, into port there, but there's also been quite a buoyant transatlantic market, which we can still see in the shipping rates. How has that looked from Virginia's point of view? It's a positive, right? Because I think one of the benefits on the East Coast is you've got the transatlantic trade, whether it's North Europe or the Mediterranean, you've got the Suez trade. So we've got South Asia, Southeast Asia, and we've got the Panama trade, and then you add South America. So we're not single trade, Northeast Asia, Transpac dom- dominant, which is what the West Coast is. So slightly more balanced portfolio and the Westbound transatlantic has been pretty good so far this year. And, and that's good for us overall, if other sectors slow down a little. I think the other role that a port has, and this is, you know, one that's challenged everybody is how do you make sure you protect each market sector? Exporters need protection. Exporters still need to get their goods out of a country and you can't let them get overwhelmed by imports. And so you have to keep their receiving dates live. You have to make sure their cargo can get through. The extra ships coming at us, this is where I think people have really shown how people can really cooperate together. Ships have been off schedule so much. Nobody's trying to say, hey, what's my birthing window? What's my birthing slot? It's going to be, hey, we'll, we'll process that. We'll process the ships at the speed at which we get them. And every shipping line's worked with us to make sure they can do that. So we have ships coming across the Atlantic where people will say four days out, hey, we've got to delay somewhere else. We'll, we'll come into you first. And we'll work that process through. So I think really got to say all that communication has made that things have stayed a lot better than they would have. If we'd have all stuck to the pre-COVID rules, we'd have had wasted capacity and more delay. So it's actually all worked reasonably, reasonably well. And Stephen, are you expecting that East Coast ports will keep this West Coast traffic long-term? You did say it was a long-term trend before, but... If, say, those union issues down on the West Coast and maybe you know, maybe a bit more automation, a bit more investment goes in there, does some of this revert back to what some people would say it's natural gateway? So there's undoubtedly been some movement, I think. But typically, you should expect that a lot of the business that has been moved to these guests will, some of it will stay here. And over time, more and more will. Just look at the sourcing locations, right? Our fastest growing market to us is India and our second fastest growing is Vietnam. That's Suez Canal traffic, right? That's Suez Canal traffic that's coming this way. So as you also look at where the fastest growing production locations are, you're never going to get away from the fact that Shanghai is the big producing port, right, uh, of the world. But 
where some of the growth is, some one of the future growth is coming from, is more in tune with Suez Canal writing. So you've got two big macro effects. Southeast Asia growing and South Asia growing, which is more in line with the Suez Canal. And you've got people wanting to diversify away from the West Coast. The one thing to remember, California is the fifth largest economy in the world, so it's massive in its own right. But two-thirds of the U.S. population lives east of the Mississippi. So the goods have got to get to east of the Mississippi for a significant volume. So Southeast, South, Southeast Asia production, two-thirds of the people live on the east of the Mississippi. So there is a slice of business that's going to move from west to east because of macro effects. Our job as an individual port is to get our slice of the pizza, right? That's, that's what our job is. Peter, on, on a wider level, do you see this uh, West Coast to East Coast shift? That's the theme of our chat today. Do you see that cargo finding traction long-term or, do, or is it some of it a short-term blip and some of it will funnel back through those old gateways? There's definitely been a, uh, a volume change trend going on in North America for many years now, but it, it remains still the main gateway, I, I, I believe, the U.S. Uh, West Coast ports. But of course, this COVID uh, years have definitely also shown that there is a limit to how much volume can get via the West Coast ports and all the way to east of, uh, of Mississippi, where two-thirds of, uh, of the consumers uh, are living. So obviously, there's a room, not only as we discussed just before, say, a long overdue uh, updating of the networks uh, internally and spend those money wisely. As Stephen rightly put it, where you do not need to look further than the ports and what they do in terms of setting up inland yachts as well. I'm not 100% sure whether that was only in Savannah, Georgia, or whether that was also in Norfolk, Virginia, where inland ramps were set up exactly to to ease some of the burdens right next to the oceans and, and still increase capacity by making such an, an inland ramp of, of some sort. So definitely the major shift is gradually ongoing, but I doubt that, that we will see a full shift where more than half of the goods is coming in via the U.S. East Coast next year. But we may be looking at 2024, 2025, when some of those investments come into the market that, uh, that Stephen talked about just before. That could be potentially the year for a full shift of volumes, depending, of course, also on the geopolitical environment that I tend to put a lot of attention to in terms of how much dependency, how much reliancy will American retailers still have on China? Will they make their investments for more resiliency into the supply chains into Vietnam, Thailand, Portugal for that matter, perhaps even Turkey? That will give shorter holds, but it all ends up in U.S. East Coast if they're going South Asia or, uh, or Europe for those investments going forward. So let's say 2024, 2025 for a shift in that, well, the 50-50 balance turning in, in favor of, of U.S. East Coast. Is there anything else you want to add on that, Stephen? Oh, I, I tend to agree it's a trend. It won't be a you know, monumental shift. It'll be a point here, a point there of market share that will move to the East. And I think the other advantage that the East Coast has as a whole is that we spread that load a little bit across a few ports as opposed to putting through one complex. So. If you're an importer coming into the United States, I think just about everybody today is saying, okay, unless we are totally dependent on speed, on the speed to market, we're going to diversify. And of course, what the pandemic has shown is that the actual speed to market has ironically been faster sometimes for the East Coast or the West Coast because of the problems that they had. The opportunity is there for everybody to look at that, to make their individual decisions. But I think you will see people diversify. And certainly from our customer engagement, those conversations are more more frequent, with better returns than they have been, say, for many years. Stephen A. Edwards, Peter Sand, thank you very much for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. 
Thank you, Mike. A massive pleasure to, uh, to be in your great company again. Take care, Mike. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. A shout out to OEC's Jason Haight for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.